turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Monday. That means a start of a brand new week. We've got some programming announcements to make in just a couple of minutes, but not before I welcome you and let you know that I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we're here every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's bothering you. We'd love to have your questions. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585, or you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app to send them in. If you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. 340-9585. Well, because it's Monday, tonight is going to be our final installment of the Sweet Summer Devotion Series. Ladies, uh, it's been a great, great summer. Where did summer go? Where did summer go? I can't believe when nine ladies speak, and tonight is the last one, Diane White will be sharing her heart tonight. I'm anxious to hear what she has to say. After tonight, we're going to be taking a three-week break from all of our Monday night studies. We always give people that time to adjust to new schedules. School will be starting here at the academy, and school starting all over the city. In fact, some of schools, uh, I think the San Antonio Independent School District started today. Um, but uh, we'll be taking a three-week break, everybody get in the flow, and then we'll resume our Monday night ladies' Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, tonight, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men. Uh, we have high school and junior high school age studies as well. What that means is you can bring the whole family, and if you have younger kids, we have... Uh, child care. They'll be learning about Jesus as well on their own. So it's a good family night here to go. Diane White tonight. I'm excited to hear what she's going to say. Now, programming notes. I told you they were coming. We talked about them a little bit last week, but let me be a little bit more um, specific today. Uh, I'm having surgery tomorrow, uh, very early in the morning. Um, I think most of you have been listening for any length of time know that a year ago, about 14 months ago, actually, I had um, um, a, a really freak thing with my heart, a, a virus attached to my heart, and I ended up needing a pacemaker and a defibrillator put in. Well, there's some problems with it, and so they're going to have to replace it, and they're going to add another lead to the lower part of my heart, the left lower chamber. So it's a little bit more complicated, but that's tomorrow. So the rest of this week will be um, repeat broadcasts. And um, um, Day Day Edition will be a repeat broadcast of of me and Paula together as well. Um, So you can still listen. Chances are you didn't hear the programs on those particular days. Uh, you just won't be able to call in with your with uh, any questions and questions that will get answered. So um, that's just this week. I 
hope and plan to be back uh, at full strength on Monday, a week from today. And I would appreciate your prayers. I'm not so concerned about the operation itself. Uh, It's just the uh, rehab from it is a little bit more difficult. I'm going to be in uh, quite a bit of pain if it's anything like the last time. And I just would like knowing that people out there are praying. So please keep us in your prayers. Keep Paul in your prayers. It's harder on her, I think, than it is on me. And we would appreciate very, very much knowing that there's a whole bunch of people praying around that. Uh, Vicki just called to say she'd be holding the Impala up in prayer. Vicki, thank you so very, very much. I know there's going to be lots and lots of people uh, who will be praying, and those are the things that matter so so deeply to us. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Let's get to the first question from our email inbox. This is from Lisa, Pastor Ron. I don't understand the point of Psalm 44. It seems to say that the Lord has forsaken Israel with no reply to their plea. How do I apply this in my life? I sure do have similar cries to the Lord, but he's always answered me. Psalm 44 seems to be unanswered. Lisa, one of the things you have to know about the Psalms, these are poetic expressions um, during times or things um, that are happening that, that, that we can't explain. We also need to understand that those who lived before Jesus didn't have the same access to God's throne through prayer that you and I have. That's very important. Now, this was uh, a psalm that was speaking of the nation of Israel in a season of great defeat. Now, we know over and over God used foreign nations to to judge them uh, because they continued to sin, because they continually turned their back on the Lord. Um, um, he, he turned his back on them. And it was in these times when things would really, really, really get difficult that they would begin to write things like, God, where are you? Have you turned your back on me? I cry out all day long, and yet I don't hear from you. Well, the one thing that we know about Israel's history is that when they called out in genuine repentance, God always spoke to them. God always met them. He always forgave and restored. Um... I personally believe that this psalm was written uh, during the days of Israel's kings. Um, I I believe that it was written at a time when a godly remnant was returning to the Lord. And because they were returning to the Lord, um, we can know that those prayers were about to be answered. Um, Because we can't know the exact circumstances, I have to answer, um, Lisa, in a very general sense. Um, And the reason I want to answer is because you asked the practical value for for a Christian today, and this psalm has enormous practical value. Let me just begin um, uh, with, with noting that because trials and tribulations are common to the people of God throughout history, that includes in our time, we need desperately to learn these lessons. Paul actually quotes the the 22nd verse of this psalm in the 8th chapter of Romans, and he uses it to comfort the persecuted, frightened Christian church of his day. Um, It was written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. I say that because it's used for our comfort. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship, shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written? This is where Paul quotes it. For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now think about that wonderful promise. So, Lisa, our response is to be sure that we're always repentant. When we've sinned, we need to agree with God. We need to stop making excuses And when we do, we have an advocate on our behalf. Now, when I did this psalm and the study of the psalm, at least a long time ago, very, very long time ago, I broke it into four sections. 
the first section was the testimonies, the second section was the trials, the third section was the turnaround, and the fourth was the trials. Now, for the sake of this phone call, let me just get right to the end, uh, because the, the, the turnaround is what really has happened, uh, or what really matters to us. Uh, to turn around, we have to soul search. We've got to examine ourselves, verses 17 and 18 in this psalm. Um, we, we we need, like them, to search our hearts. God, you know everything about us and not hide from him. That's why Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, that a man ought to examine himself before he comes to the table of communion. Uh, in the 13th chapter of Second Corinthians, he says we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. And then he tells us to test ourselves. You see, we can only do those things when we really allow the Spirit of God to examine our hearts and then finding ourselves in right standing with God through the work of Christ. Well, then all of the times that we pray, our prayers are going to be heard. And you indicated that in your question. The second step in the turnaround is we have to deal with reality. I've got another question if I get to it today uh, that is painful, but, but it, it's, it's painful because we, we just deny reality. Uh, Christians aren't called to denial. We're called to a life of self-denial, and there's a world of difference. And the reality in this particular psalm, Lisa, is that sometimes we're just in really, really deep, deep trouble, and that was the case with Israel. And we can't see a cure, and that's why they were crying out in the psalm. Uh, The third step in the turnaround is to rely on the nature of God in verses 20 and 21 of this psalm. They focus on and fall back upon the character of God. God wants to forgive. God wants to deliver us. He'll be there with you in the trial. I always think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. He was with them in the trial. And all we have to do is open our hearts so they can do it. And too often that's where we Christians fail. And then finally, the final step of the turnaround from verse 22 in this psalm is understanding that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, according to Jesus, said, he said we'd be blessed. We do it for him who gave his life for us. Everything that God asks us to do that's difficult, we do it because he told us to do it, because he did so much more for us first. So all of those things are really, really important And then we can get to the place where we can say, all of this comes to us in prayer. I love in the 23rd verse, awake, O Lord, he says. And and that leads to triumph. The way to win through these kind of struggles to pray. Again, Lisa, because we have a different prayer relationship with God than Jews did. We can cleanse our hearts, we can open our hearts And then when things seem the most difficult, we can have the confidence that prayer is firing the winning shot in our battle with the enemy of our souls. That's the purpose of prayer. Prayer isn't to get God to go along with your plan. And all too often, Lisa, that's what Israel was doing. They wanted God to deliver them, but they didn't want to get right with God. They wanted God to meet them on their their terms. For you and for me, we understand that we can only pray as Jesus did, thy will, not my will be done. And as we cry out in prayer, we get to know God better. We grow more comfortable with him, spending more time around him. If God's on our side, according to Romans eight thirty one, we can never fail. So those are the things that matter so very, very much. And that's what this psalm is doing from an Old Testament perspective, Lisa. It doesn't really have to concern you unless, of course, we're not right with God. Thank you very much. Appreciate the question, Lisa. Let's go to Jim calling on line one. Jim, thanks for the call. You're on the air. Well, thanks for taking the call, Pastor Ron. And uh, I'll be praying for you as well. You know, those that are in the Bible that work among us as elders and preach and teach are worthy of double honor. So, yeah, no no other thing I should do simply than just to pray for you and go through that trial. So I'll be glad to do that. God bless you, brother. Thank you very much. Sure. Question about John 
chapter 21, verse 15. It's a pretty well-known passage where Jesus confronts Peter. And uh, the, the in English, of course, I think you've even shared this on the program, just we have the word love, and in Greek there are several words for love. And in this individual verse, Jesus says, Peter, son of John, do you love me? Using the agape word, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, using the filial or the brotherly love term. And, you know, I, I, I know that we speak differently when we're talking to believers, as when we're giving our testimony to unbelievers. And it's just intriguing, I've heard you use this expression that I've not heard before in other testimonies. And I, it gives me pause. I'm not, you know, I want to copy exactly what you'll say in your testimony, but um, the, the expression, fall in love with Jesus, because I've always heard that in secular terms for romantic or even physical love. But I, I just take pause. I think, gosh, would an unbeliever understand that? Or is that maybe a... a Y'all intentionally, I think, use that even in your uh, ministry talk. Could you talk about that expression, please? Sure, sure I can. Um, Jim, Jim, I think a couple of things. Well, one, I don't think a, an unbeliever can understand. When I use that term, I'm talking to Christians. And, and I often, uh, during our messages and just praying as we get started in a, in a Bible study, I'll say, Lord, uh, for those of us who are yours, help us to fall more in love with you than ever before. Now, uh, I have been criticized roundly for saying that, oh, you know, that's just an emotional, romanticized idea, and that really doesn't do anything. And, 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 and I, just, I couldn't disagree more. One only needs to read the Song of Solomon. And understand Jesus pouring out his heart to us. You know, John writes that we love him because he first loved us. Well, uh, until we understand the, the, the height and width and depth and breadth of God's love for us, until we understand that he looks at us and, and looks in us, and, and he loves us so, so infinitely, um, we're never going to be able to love him the way that he wants us to love him back. Now, um, you know, we have, uh, as you indicated, Jim, we have this word love um, that, that doesn't identify different degrees of love. I can say I love Paula, and I can say I love a banana split. Well, I can't compare those two loves. One is a mature love, and one is just a love that satisfies my flesh. And so what we have to understand is that God wants our whole hearts. God sacrificed everything for us. He proved there was no end to the love that he poured out for us on the cross. He wants something back. And one of the great things about the Song of Solomon as this beautiful picture, Jim, what I often do is tell people to look at the book. It's It's got titles, subtitles uh, in, in most translations. And the part that we want to read is the part that's our title, Lover. That's Jesus speaking to us. Now, it's a real historical story for sure. It's Solomon speaking to the woman that stole his breath away. But at the same time, this is the Spirit written word indicating this is how deeply Jesus loves us. And this wonderful thing about the, the, this poem, this song, the one song, Solomon, we know, wrote a thousand songs. This is the only one that's preserved. And there's a very specific reason for it is because as we learn how much he loves us, we're going to love him more, as was the case with the Shulamite. You know, at first she was sort of, oh, you know, you say I'm pretty, but I'm not very pretty. And and he says, no, how beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. And when he gets done with that, she says, and I'm going to paraphrase, basically she says, yeah, and you're not bad yourself. And then she starts checking him out. She responds to the love that he professed with a professed love of her own. Well, that's exactly what we need to do as Christians. So this isn't some feminine, romanticized fantasy. This is the kind of love that Jesus died for. That's what a relationship is really all about. If Jesus says, do you love me? And all I can say is, I like you. Well, then it's because I don't really have faith enough to believe that he loves me. And this is something Paul and I talk about all the time. We use it in counseling. Paula talks about it on this program a lot when she's here on Thursdays, is when we find people who don't really feel that kind of passion for Jesus, it's always because they don't understand how valuable they are to him. 
when when a woman stays in a physically abusive relationship, it's because she doesn't understand how valuable she is to God, how much he loves her. We hear people tell us all the time that we'll never measure up. Well, Jesus says, no, you already have measured up, and I'm crazy about you. So that's why it's so important. Now, in John 21, Jim, uh, you have to understand why Jesus would ask Peter, do you truly love me more than these, the word agape? Remember, agape love is only available by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you truly love me more than these? And Peter's answer was, yes, Lord, I like you. Well, the reason Jesus asked him that so directly is because it was just before Jesus was arrested when Peter said, Lord, if all these others desert you, I never will. In essence, he was saying, you can count on me. I'm the rock. I'm the one that you can trust. And that's when Jesus said, Peter, before this day's over, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, that's what happened. So now, while he's on this beach and got this great haul of fish, Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? And, and he's saying, you said you did, now do you? And he's pointing to two things. He's pointing first to the fish, this great haul of fish. Peter went back fishing. But more importantly than that, he's pointing to the other disciples. All of them except Judas are there now. And saying, you said you love me more than, more than this life, fishing, the way to make a living. But you also said you love me more than all of these other men. Do you love me more than these? And Peter, in humility, and this is a brokenness thing that's going on here. Peter is saying, in essence, I told you I did, Lord. I'm so ashamed of myself. I know there are limits to my love. And at the end, of course, you know that Peter says, okay, I'll work with that. I'll work with that. And that's the restoration of Peter. So, Jim, I hope that helps. I love this passage of Scripture. It's one of the most practical passages of Scripture that, that any of us can ever have. But remember, the whole idea of falling in love with Jesus, if you spend time with him, if you're in his word, you can't help but to fall in love with him. If you don't have that passion for him, it's because you're rebuffing his advances He's trying to get near you. He's trying to get closer. But all too often, Jim, what we do is we hold the things that seem to matter more to us closer than we hold Jesus. So I I personally, with all of my heart, believe this is the key to our walk with Jesus. Nothing is more important than being passionately and madly in love with him. And there's nothing romantic. I'm a logical, practical guy. There isn't a romantic bone in my body in terms of what I believe about Jesus Christ. But you know what? I've fallen in love with him. We also remember that his criticism of the church at Ephesus, so they were a good church. They were doing the things they were supposed to do, doing all the works. But here's what Jesus said. I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. You used to love me. What happened? That's what Jesus is saying. And Jim, just for your sake, I want you to know that almost all of the difficult counseling issues that I deal with face-to-face, in person with people, happen because they love something or someone more than they love Jesus. And whenever you put something or someone ahead of Jesus, you are falling out of love with Jesus instead of falling more in love with him. When you're in love with him, everything else is in perfect order. And you can enjoy those other things more. So I hope that helps. Jim, that's a great, great question. 340-9585. We've got inside three minutes. Let me get a quick question here. Uh, here is a quick question anonymously. Uh, Pastor On, there's something I really want to do, but I know it's not what God wants. What will happen if I do it anyway? Well, Anonymous, what will happen is that there'll be a lot of pain. It's just that simple. Um, You can't call Jesus Lord and then decide you're going to do things on your terms. Will he let you do it? Probably. But one of the reasons he'll let you do it is because he wants you to learn something from it. And the only thing you can learn from it is that disobedience causes a lot of pain. And then when the trials come, when the pain comes, uh, you won't be able to blame Jesus for it. 
it'll be a bed of your own making and a pain of your own making. Let me give you an example, Anonymous, of something that I have to deal with, I'll bet, 25 times a year. Somebody who's single, but they're very lonely, they will come to me and they will say, this man or this woman, I want to, 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 to date them or I want to marry them, but they're not a Christian. And I'll tell them you're in for a lifetime of pain. God says, don't do it. And while usually they respond initially by saying, okay, I won't, but often they run back in and make that terrible, terrible choice. And they do it because they ended up doing what they wanted instead of what God wanted. Sometimes, Anonymous, those people, when they get angry at God because of the pain they're in, sometimes the Lord has to use people like me to say, well, God didn't put you in this situation. You did what you knew God didn't want you to do, and there's always going to be pain. So that's the prediction I can make. I'm not a prophet, but it's pretty easy to suggest that if you do what God doesn't want you going to, what doesn't want you to do, you're going to suffer a great deal as a result. His plan is far better than yours. We have 30 minutes left on the live show this week. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our monday program 340-9585 here is a question from wes from our email inbox he says in light of the current events related to the death penalty and the catholic church The Pope said that today's capital punishment is unacceptable, however serious the condemned crime, the condemned crimes may have been. I know that's subjective. Uh, This is back to uh, Wes's question. I know that's subjective. The Old Testament addresses capital punishment. What does the New Testament say about capital punishment? And what does Jesus say? Well, uh, Wes first, and I know you know this, you've called into this program before, uh, but Jesus wrote the entirety of the scriptures. We need to understand that from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, Jesus wrote it all. The book is about him, the book is for him, the book is toward him, and the book is intended to instruct us so that we might know the heart of God. So when way back in Genesis, and Genesis is sort of the foundational book where a lot of these practical doctrines um, work their way into um, the essentials of our Christian faith. And I'm not suggesting that believing capital punishment is an essential. But it shows us the heart of God. One who takes the life of a man, his life must also be taken. And, and we look at that and we say, well, that's very vindictive or that's very punitive. That's not it at all. What Jesus is doing is affirming the value of human life. In other words, if you are pro-capital punishment, you are pro-life. It's not the life of the condemned killer, but you're affirming the value of life. And in this particular case, it would be the value of the life of the victim. So these are really, really important things to understand. So the Old Testament addresses capital punishment in great detail. The New Testament says in Revelation, I'm sorry, John, Revelation, in Romans chapter 3, verse um, 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Now, that's not always the case. I want to remind you that when Paul wrote this, Caesar Nero was the emperor of the world. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Here's the key. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, I think too often 
uh, Wes, we get kind of trapped in a, well, how do we know the government is righteous? This, this is without regard to the righteousness of the government. Ideally, governors are supposed to represent God. We know they don't. But in all societies in the history of the world, those in authority had the power to take life. They had the power to spare life, but they had the power to take life. And they would do that um, for capital crimes. So Romans 13 validates capital punishment. And it validates capital punishment because, as I said, it's a pro-life position. Not only is it a pro-life position, but it demonstrates the value of life to God. And therefore, as New Testament believers, we absolutely have to be pro-capital punishment. Now, here's the problem. I'm going to get a question. If I get to it today, I don't know that I will. But we got a question uh, about uh, another issue in our world that we live in. And if things keep changing, well, what the Catholic Church, what the Pope has done is changed the character and the nature of God. And that's why we can't do this. And that's why this whole specious argument of the Pope being God's vicar on earth, the, 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 the words of God spoken ex cathedra in matters of faith and doctrine, simply cannot, by any logical argument, be true. So we who are born-again Christians, Wes, we need to be pro-life. That's not just protecting the life of the unborn, but that's also demanding that the life of those who are true victims of these horrendous crimes are valued as well. Every person who is against the death penalty has completely devalued the lives of the victims. We've denied the justice of God. That's why these matters are so important. So that's what Jesus says. That's what the New Testament says. That's what our Bible says. That is the heart of God. He loves you so much that when somebody messes with you, he's going to get it back. By the way, the very end, Jesus himself is going to administer the death penalty. When he returns to this world, the end of the Great Tribulation, he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. And he's going to devour his enemies with the sword. It'll be the word. The, the, the word of God is the sword. But he is going to be the one who exercises the capital punishment. So I hope that helps. Lance wants to know, Pastor Ron, do we know how Paul died? Yeah, Lance, we do with probably 99.9% certainty. Um, Paul was ordered by Caesar Nero to be beheaded. Uh, Nero, of course, is the one who blamed Christians for all of the problems. Nero murdered countless numbers of Christians. In his anger, Nero was a madman. He was almost certainly demon-possessed by the devil himself. Uh, and and Paul was one who would be put to death. Uh, he would have lost his head. That's the way he was murdered. Uh, Paul, at the end of his life, was in Mamertine prison. Um, it's a fascinating thing. You can Google it, and, and there's wonderful, copious amounts of information about it. Uh, I know some friends. I'm not personally, but I know some friends who have been there. And it's just a horrible, horrible existence. Um, and he, we know Paul suffered there uh, until uh, he was taken to have his head separated from the rest of his body. So, Lance, that is uh, almost without dispute, almost a, an absolute certainty. Greg said, uh, you said a couple of weeks ago that how we view the Trinity is an essential of our faith. I don't understand why it matters so much and why differing views of the Trinity are not okay. Greg, they're not okay because we don't have the right to change who God is. We don't have a right to change the character, the nature of God, nor the composition of God. Now, by that I mean we serve one God. 
present in three persons, three manifestations. But all three are God. Now, we have a tendency, the reason this doesn't matter to you or it doesn't seem to matter to you is we view a hierarchy. We view the father, you know, the boss, and then the son who's second in command, the heir to the throne, and then we view the Holy Spirit as sort of the junior partner of the Trinity. That's simply not true. The Bible very clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They share exactly the same um, um, characteristics. Um, They're completely God. They're not one-third, one-third, one-third. Everything that is true of God the Father is true of God the Holy Spirit and is true of Jesus. Jesus, I say often on this program, is God the Son, but he's also the Son of God. And when we understand that, then we begin to see this beautiful harmony between the work of our triune God. And any believer, for example, I think the question that we had uh, a couple weeks ago that you're addressing is about oneness Pentecostalism. Um, They are denying the Father. Jesus said if you deny the Father, you deny him. And when this Pentecostal say, no, 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 we affirm Jesus, we deny the Father, well, then they're denying God. And the reason this matters so much, Greg, is because those are people who aren't going to be in heaven. We don't have to understand all of the intricacies of the Trinity. But to deny that the Father is God or that the Holy Spirit is God or to believe that Jesus is the Father or Jesus is the Holy Spirit, is simply heresy. And when we deal with heresy, we've got to take a very strong stand. You know, there are super, super popular preachers out there who deny the Trinity. T.D. Jakes, every time you'll see him on TV, he's putting on a show, his church is filled with people falling all over themselves. He denies the Trinity. Oneness Pentecostals, of which he is, Jehovah's Witnesses, a cult, they say Jesus, but they don't mean our Jesus. Mormons, they deny the efficacy of the Trinity. So when you deny God, there is an eternal price to pay. That's why it matters so much, Greg. So please study these things. And every time somebody has an argument or a problem with the Trinity, well, how can you understand one plus one plus one is three, and God said he's one God? I always reply the same way. Well, one times one times one is three. No, it's not. It's one. So think of multiplication, and you get a Father who's God, a Son who's God, and the Holy Spirit who's God. And since our New Testaments very clearly identify each of the persons as separate, distinct, and fully God, it's our responsibility to agree. Here's a question from Beverly. Do you approve of online dating? Beverly, you must be a new listener. (laughs) I laugh because this is a question that we get from time to time. And while it's not up to me to approve what people do, I want that clear. Uh, people in my church have met online and married, and, um, you know, I'm happy for them. However, when anybody comes to me, and they're lonely, they want to find somebody, and they ask about online dating, my response is always the same. Where's the faith in that? Isn't that doing what the rest of the world does? Isn't that taking matters into your own hands? Isn't it taking the easy way out? And here's what I tell people. Look, you should find a spouse in church. Somebody that you could watch their walk with the Lord. You could see their heart towards Jesus. Somebody that you could get to know. Somebody you could serve beside. Somebody that God could knit together. Two hearts to become one. How do you do that online? How do you do that? Now, I understand one thing, Beverly, and I want to be very clear about this. A lot of the people that... I know who have used online dating. Before I go there, let me say one other thing. We, we live in a different generation now. Younger people, millennials, 
they depend on the internet for everything. Their their life is lived online. So this is a simple adjustment for them. They have no qualms about doing everything online. But one of the things that I always tell people is if you meet somebody online, how do you know who you're talking to? What's the first thing you do? You contact them, you make a date, you meet somewhere and check each other out. Where's the faith in that? Where's the faith in that? If you're walking with Jesus and he has a plan for your life and that plan includes being married, how can you miss the one God has for you if you're walking with him? And the reasons we're so impatient, and here's, I think, the bigger reason. We're tired of being rejected. Online, you just put your profile out there, and if people hit it, they're interesting, they're, they're interested, rather. And you don't really have to worry so much about asking somebody out or taking the initiative and being rejected again and again and again. I think we need just to toughen up, Beverly. So I don't approve of it, but remember, it's not my job to approve. So I just would tell you to be very, very, very careful. And this is a matter that we as Christians ought to pray over. This is one of those things that why won't we go to the Lord? Now, here's what we do. And and I've had people say, well, Pastor, I prayed about it. So what did the Lord say? Well, that's they didn't wait for an answer. Lord, I'm going to do this if you want me to do it. Bless it if you don't stop me. Don't let anybody respond. Well, that doesn't that's not the way the world works. You put yourself out there and then you're on your own. I'd much rather go into these really important life circumstances barely knowing that I'm in the perfect will of God. Marriage is one of those decisions that's too important to leave in your hands or mine. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question for Teresa. I have a sibling who is transgender. How can I help him come to Christ? Uh, Teresa, um, I'm not saying what I'm about to say. I'm not saying to be cruel. Please understand and hear my heart here. Um. Your sibling is not transgender. Your sibling is a boy or your sibling is a girl. Their chromosomes, their biology proves it. Transgender is a pink elephant. Transgender is what the world has decided that we can identify as if we're not happy with who we are. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. God created a method by which we are born and determined our gender and our DNA determines a whole bunch of other stuff. That's the process God created. You know, I often hear these people say, well, God made me this way. No, God didn't make you. A process that God created made you. God made them male and female. And when we rebel against our own DNA, our own chromosome structure, we're in rebellion against God. And we're not helping people by allowing them to be confused. I heard from a reliable source, I haven't checked it out, so I want everybody to understand that as I use this, but those who identify as transgender are 19 times more likely to kill themselves than any other group. 19 times. Why? Well, because the devil has lied to him. The devil has confused him. The devil has stripped away every vestibule of help. We live in a world that says, no, you can be what you want to be. I cannot be six foot two and playing second base for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I can't. 
I can't be an NBA basketball player. I want to be, but I can't be. You remember not too long ago, the woman named Rachel Dolenz, and she was absolutely vilified in the media and social media. Uh, her life has been ruined. Uh, she worked for the NAACP and uh, was a very, very forceful advocate for all things African-American. And then it came out that she was white and had been passing as African-American for a very, very long time. And the truth is she wanted to be African-American. That's how she identified. Why is it wrong for her to identify that way? But it's not wrong for a boy to identify as a girl or vice versa. Why did she get blasted, her life devastated, and yet we embrace other people's fictional reality? Why do we do that? Now, I want to be clear. She's white, and she should have identified as white. She can take up causes that are near and dear to her heart, but but she wasn't dealing with reality, this Rachel Dolenz. But neither is anyone who says, I was born in the wrong body, I identify as a male or identify as a female, in contradistinction to their gender. Why is it that we say it's loving to accept them when they're 19 times more likely to kill themselves? This whole idea of being transgender is an idea that's created in the pit of hell. And the acceptance of it by, well, now almost everybody is the most unloving thing that we can do to these young men and women or older men and women. All that to say, Teresa, that the best way you can help him, you said him, come to Christ is to tell him the truth in love. Tell him to deal with reality. Tell him he's rebelling against God. And there's never going to be any value. There's never going to be anything good that comes out of rebelling against God. And then, of course, you can pray. But don't give in to the argument in this world. Don't give in. Now, they will reply with all kinds of emotional arguments. I know I've always been this way. I knew it from birth. No, they didn't. Is there any coincidence here that as a segment of our population began some 10 years ago, it's not, I mean, this is a brand new phenomenon in terms of the history. Is there any coincidence that we start telling people it's a good thing, we start patting them on the back and applauding their courage? Is there any coincidence that more and more people are coming up to the same conclusion? The answer is no. Let's go to Charles on line one. Charles, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, uh, Pastor. I have a question. Y'all have a local church here? Uh, local church where? Here in San Antonio. Yeah, we're in San Antonio. Actually, we're in um, Universal City, Charles. Uh, but we're in local. Uh, Universal City is the northeast side of town. We also have uh, churches in other parts of North Central. We've got a church on the south side. Uh, we've got a church uh, on the west side. Uh, we've got a church in New Braunfels. So, yeah, we've got other churches around. Charles, if you want um, uh, some some direction, why don't you call the church office, 658-8337, or you can email questions at calvarysa.com, and we will make sure you get a list of the, the churches so you can find the one nearest to you. Okay? Okay. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Charles. Let's go to Castle Hills and talk with Rick. Rick, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Ron? I'm doing really well, thank you. Good. I'm just glad to hear your voice. I've been listening to you for years on the radio, and I haven't had the chance to meet you face-to-face because I'm not driving. Just wanted to call and say God bless you and thinking about you on your surgery and your wife. Praying for you. Rick, thank you so very much. Thank you for all your hard work, and I love you a whole lot. Oh, man, thank you. You made my day. God bless you, Rick. Thanks so very, very much. 
You know, I don't know that we have time for another question, so let me just say this. To people like Rick and those, your prayers mean so much to us. And I always feel a little embarrassed when people say, thank you for your hard work. This isn't hard work at all. The the, the blessing of, of being able to communicate with you, to, to ask uh, for the Lord to, to give me this privilege is such an honor. And I thank you from the depths of my heart. And I would appreciate it. I know everybody's going to be praying for me, but please keep Paul in prayer. It's harder for her sitting in a waiting room at the hospital than it is for me to be out and and uh, I'll just wake up. So I appreciate your prayers. You know, I've never been under, so this is one of the hard things I don't like. The first time I had this surgery um, a year ago, 14 months ago, um, I didn't want them to put me out, so they didn't. So I was awake during the whole thing. Uh, so the thing I'm most nervous about is going to sleep. And uh, I was talking with one of my elders here at the church, a, a dear, dear friend who's been with us for 22 years. Um, he was telling me when he went through surgery, he had this Psalm 23, he was quoting it as he went to sleep. And I told him, well, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be talking to Jesus right to the end, but just when I get put on that table... Uh, and they start to put me under, I'm going to be thinking of Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, uh, that description of Jesus. I know he's going to be there. I know he's going to be watching out for us. So I appreciate your prayers so very, very, very much. And thank you all for being so kind to us. Paul and I are grateful. Remember tonight, the last installment of our sweet summer devotion series, Diane White. She is a blast. You'll love her. I have no idea what she's going to say, but it'll be worth hearing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Rebroadcast for the rest of the week. We'll keep you posted as best we can. CalvarySA.com. You'll be getting some updates there. God bless you. See you tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. I won't see you tomorrow. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. AM 630, The Word. We hope you've enjoyed The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron. You can find out more about Pastor Ron and all of the folks over at Calvary Chapel by logging on to calvarysa.com. Once again, calvarysa.com.